Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Did you ever do anything wrong? That's a silly question, of course. Well, when we do wrong, what's human nature to do? To hide, to cover it up. And we may as well take those halos off right now because that is exactly what we do. It's just, it's human to hide. I mean, our first parents, Adam and Eve, did that. When they sinned, it was just natural for them to hide. And it's true in big areas where people try to cover up massive things, and it's even true in small areas. I mean, after all, if we're out driving on the highway here in Wichita, K96 or Kellogg, and we're going a little bit above the speed limit, what happens if we see lights? Oh, we take the foot off the accelerator, we slow down and drive like we'd never been doing anything wrong. It is just human nature to hide when we do wrong. But did you ever get caught? I mean, the kind of caught that there's no use trying to explain. Worse yet, did you ever get caught by somebody who had it in for you? I mean, someone who wanted to take you down that really didn't care that much about right or wrong. They just cared about destroying you. Did you ever get caught doing something wrong by somebody who had it in for you? Well, if you ever did, and I guess we all have at some point in our lives, you feel two things. You feel guilt. You feel the shame of doing wrong. And you feel the jeopardy that that situation creates. What's going to happen to me? Because now you're caught. Well, there's an expression. I don't know if we still use this expression or not. But I remember reading this expression in a lot of literature. Caught dead to rights. Have you heard that before? Caught dead to rights. Well, (laughs) I, I, I was looking up that expression because I've heard it all my life. I've written it and spoken it. I didn't know exactly what it meant. But One definition, perhaps the simplest definition of being caught dead to rights means you're positively guilty with no way of getting clear. That's what it means to be caught dead to rights. Positively guilty, no question, and there's no way to get clear. Well, she was caught dead to rights, but caught dead to rights by people who could care less about her, people who had an agenda, people who could have cared less whether she was harmed whether she was judged. In fact, in our situation, we'll see that the people who caught her didn't even care if she got executed because of what she had done wrong. I'm reading out of John's Gospel, chapter 8. In verse 3, Jesus tells this story. It begins by saying, As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught. Well, the Greek word for caught there means, and I'm giving you verbatim what the word means, it means seized eagerly. 
Can you get that picture in your mind? I mean, here is this woman who is caught. She is grabbed eagerly. The people who grabbed her were enjoying doing it. Well, the Bible says she was caught in the act of adultery. Well, we know what adultery is. It's sex. It's sex with someone you're not married to. It, in, it sort of involves the possibility that a person is having sex with a married person or that person having sex is married or maybe both of them are married. But in any event, marriage vows have been broken. You know, it's interesting. When Americans are asked about what they consider sin, and in our permissive age today, Americans consider precious little sin, but the one thing that you'll always see real high on the list of what Americans consider sin, it's adultery. They believe that's wrong. It's a wrong thing to break your marriage vows. And that's what this woman had done. Either she had broken her marriage vows or she was involved in a man breaking his marriage vows or both of them were. But in any event, she was caught, seized eagerly, and they drag her to Jesus and put her in front of the crowd. Well, that's a bad thing. That's a bad place to be. When you're caught, dead to rights, positively guilty, with no chance of escape, and worse than that, thrown down in front of everybody. Well, I'm sure, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be necessarily um, sensational, but I think it is likely that her clothing at that point was not complete. I think it's fair to assume that. She's thrown down on the ground in front of Jesus. Now, I should tell you this, that as we study the Gospels, and that's what we're doing in red letters, the questions, looking at questions that people, uh, the questions that Jesus asked people, um, it's important for us to understand that there were primarily three groups of people in Jesus' world. Now, there were more groups, but we see these three groups over and over. There were the Pharisees, who were the ultra-religionists ultra of the day. They would be the ultra-right wingers of the time. And then there were the Sadducees who were the ultra, ultra lefties of the time. They didn't believe the Bible was the word of God. They didn't believe in the miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in much of anything. So you have the Pharisees who were like the ultra right wing and the Sadducees who were the ultra left wing. And then you have a third group that the Bible generally refers to as sinners. I mean, these are the people who do wrong and there's no question about it. I mean, they don't fit the elite lefties. They don't fit the ultra right wing, they're just bad to the bone. And those are the three groups that we see over and over and over. And so I guess typically it would be the ultra religionists who are engaged in catching this woman. She is a sinner and they throw her down at the feet of Jesus. With that in mind, verse four, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says stone her. Well, that was the Jewish form of execution. If you've ever read about stoning in the Bible, let me just give you an idea of what happened in simple terms. Oftentimes what would happen in stoning is a person would be caught, they would be thrown off uh, what we might call a cliff, they would land on the ground, of course they would be damaged by the fall, and then those who were standing above would pick up stones and throw rocks at the person until the person was dead. That had been sort of the Jewish way of executing for centuries. Now, in this time frame... Stoning was not really legal because Rome was in charge and Rome had their own forms of execution. And even though they gave the Jews a whole lot of power and a lot of authority within reason, 
At the same time, the Jews were not able to execute someone without Rome signing off on it. So what's happening here is the Pharisees, well, as we see in verse 6, they were trying to trap Jesus. Because if on one hand Jesus said, let her go, they would go away and say he has no respect for the law of Moses. If Jesus had said, stone her, they would have trotted off to the Roman authorities and say, this guy's breaking the law. So they thought they had him in a catch-22. But in any event, there's the woman probably not completely clothed, full of shame, full of guilt, full of embarrassment. They throw her at Jesus' feet and they say, Moses says, stoner, what do you have to say? Depending on how you feel about how good you are, you're probably going to identify with either the accusers or this woman. If you feel really good about yourself and you believe that You have lived an exemplary life. Even though you might not agree with their methods, you would maybe identify with this group of people because adultery is a bad thing. And after all, she was caught in the very act. She was caught doing it with somebody who was not her husband. And and again, you might not think that the Pharisees went about it the right way and did it the right way, but there's a part of you that says... I sort of feel what they feel because this is a bad woman. If you don't feel so good about your life, you will probably quickly identify with this woman. I do. I've never committed this particular sin. I've never committed adultery except for Jesus' pesky definition about looking with lust. I can't remember specifically having done that, but I wouldn't want to be too insistent about my innocence in that area. But even if I haven't committed this particular sin, I'm still guilty of breaking a lot of God's laws. I am guilty of so many sins. And so consequently, I identify in this story Not with the crowd of accusers, I identify with the woman. And by the way, lest we should feel that it's a a strange thing to identify with sinners, who would you consider to be some of the great people of the Bible? If you were to make a list of great people, let's just say in the Old Testament, I'll bet you you wouldn't go very long before you listed a guy named David. Because he was, after all, the person Jesus identified with when he came to the earth. He called himself the son of David. And and the Bible says that David was a person after God's own heart. And we all know that David committed one really bad sin. And and we're, we're aware of that situation. But David would say this. And just in case any of us feel too fully righteous, we might ought to hear what David said in Psalm 4012. He said, my sins pile up so high... I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs on my head. I have lost all courage. Guys, you're thinking about, when you think about that verse, one of the greatest human beings that ever lived. And yet he said, my sins pile up so high, I can't see my way out. Do you ever feel like that? I do. I feel that way a lot. There's just so many things I want to get victory over in my life, and I can't. I've tried time and time again to do better, to think differently, but I still struggle with overeating. I still struggle with attitude issues and stuff. I mean, these are just things that just crop up over and over and over in my life, and I feel like, David, my sins pile up so high I can't see my way out. And if you identify with the crowd, then you won't feel this way. If you identify with the crowd, you're going to feel like, well, hey, I'm not so bad, but I... I'll be honest with you, I I identify, even though I haven't committed her sin, I identify with her. 
embarrassment, shame, and in the presence of God. Think that over. That is where she is. Embarrassed, ashamed of her guilt, and now in the very presence of Jesus. And the crowd is saying, Moses in the law says stoner. And they were right. I mean, they didn't care about her. They didn't care about what happened to her. But technically speaking, they were right. I mean, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the Bible says, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and, uh-oh, both the man and the woman. Well, isn't it interesting that when they caught her, they didn't catch him? Hmm. Some things haven't changed too much in 2,000 years. Well, technically they were right because that verse said the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. And it was a good law. I mean, God's laws were meant for societal good. Imagine how much better off our world would be if there was fidelity, if there were no breaking of marriage vows. When you think about the pain of divorce and and all the challenges that that can create, and just the pain of, of infidelity, even if there isn't a divorce. I mean, many of you know what it's like to be victimized by this horrible sin. So I understand that God's law is good, but Paul, in the book of Romans, kind of spells it out for us to help us balance all this out. He said the trouble is not with the law. I mean, when I think about the speed laws out there in Wichita. There's nothing wrong with the laws, nothing wrong with the speed limit signs. But Paul said, the law is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I really don't understand myself, he said, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. We've already talked about David, one of the greatest people of the Old Testament. Now we're talking about one of the greatest human beings of all time in the New Testament, Paul. And yet Paul said, I don't understand myself because I want to do the right thing, but I don't do the right thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing, but I do the wrong thing. So where do you see yourself? Are you with the crowd? Or are you standing with the woman caught dead to rights? I know where I stand. Without Jesus, I stand with her. I haven't committed her sin, but I've committed a lot of others and I've broken God's law. But for a few moments while you're exploring this story, I want you to look, right, look away from the angry, self-righteous crowd, and I want you to look away from the cowering woman who has been caught, and I want you to look at Jesus. Just in your mind, look at his face. As you look at this whole entire scenario, just come in tight on Jesus' face. What will he do? I mean, after all, he's God Almighty. He's lawgiver. I mean, the Bible tells us that Everything that God's ever done, Jesus has participated in. So Jesus has participated in giving of the law. But even though he's a lawgiver, he's come on a mission. So I want you to just come in tight on his face. Do you ever, like, watch a live scenario, maybe in a high-profile trial? I remember back, oh, 25 or 30 years ago, it was the O.J. Simpson trial. And, you know, the whole world stopped when the verdict was announced. And we've seen that play out with several high-profile trials in the last few years. And so if you've ever been on watching television in one of those situations, and you see the defendant standing there at the table with his or her lawyer, you see the jury file in, you know, there's everyone sort of breathless because 
we know what's going to happen. If the, if the verdict is guilty, that person's going to be led away in cuffs. If the verdict is not guilty, then there's going to be a whole lot of hugs and a lot of celebrations, and the defendant is going to be able to walk out of the courtroom without any jeopardy. That's what happens. That's what's hanging in the balance. But I always think about those moments when you're waiting to find out what is going to happen. I mean, it's, it's kind of breathtaking when you're just watching on television. But I, I imagine what it would be like for the defendant to be waiting at that moment to see what's going to happen. So that's where we are. The crowd throws the woman down at Jesus' feet, caught her dead to rights. The woman, ashamed, cowering, not completely clothed. And Jesus, who's going to give the verdict, and we're coming in tight on him to see what he's going to say. But he doesn't say anything. He does the strangest thing. In John 8, 6, the Bible says he stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. <laughs> the question I've been asked hundreds of times after teaching on this scripture is, what did he write? Well, I guess we'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find that out. Because I've heard all kinds of speculation on what Jesus wrote. Perhaps the most interesting thing, I don't think this is what Jesus wrote, but I've heard preachers say that perhaps he wrote down the names of men in the group who had been unfaithful. I don't know. My, my best guess is that Jesus wrote the Ten Commandments. I just think that's what he wrote because after all, as I said to you a few moments ago, I haven't broken this particular commandment, but I've broken quite a few other commandments. So perhaps, and I believe, Jesus wrote the Ten Commandments. There's another reason why I believe this. Uh, when you think about how the law was given, it was written by, well, Exodus 31, 18, the Lord gave the two stone tablets written by the finger of God. Well, when Jesus wrote in the sand, what was he writing with? He was writing with the finger of God. But they don't get it yet. You know, self-righteous people, can, they can be slow to get it. Have you noticed that? So the Bible says they kept demanding an answer. It's Jesus riding on the ground. While he's riding, they're continuing to say what they say. We caught her dead to rights in the act of adultery. Moses says, stoner, what do you have to say? So at this point, Jesus stood up. And he said, all right. But let the one who never sinned, well, if he wrote the Ten Commandments like I think he did, notice how he's setting this up. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down and wrote again. And the most amazing thing happened. Well, you read it in verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. I hope God kept this on videotape. He may have to blew out part of the, the part where the woman is, but I just hope he kept this on videotape because the crowd just begins to melt, the accusers, that is. And the Bible says the oldest were the ones who left first. Why? Well, this one's easy. There's a problem with accusing a breaker of God's law. We'll get into that next week. But there was a legal problem with accusing someone of breaking Moses' law. Well, 
Part of that problem is in James chapter 2, verse 10, when the Bible says, whoever breaks one commandment is guilty of breaking them all. So Jesus said, if anyone is here and you've never broken the law, then knock yourself, well, he didn't say knock yourself out, but he said, throw the first rock. But there's one more thing that you might not know about the law in those days. See, the innocent witness always had to throw the first rock. But a false witness had to receive the same punishment as the accused. Do the calculus. They are accusing her of breaking the law. If someone said, I am innocent, and then threw the first rock, they would be the next person to get stoned. So you kind of get the idea why. From the oldest who would have known the law best to the youngest, they just dropped their rocks and went home. But now the woman has a real problem. The one who could pick up the rocks and stone her is the one who is left. Jesus. He is innocent. He never broke the law. He wrote the law. What's he going to do? Does this ever keep you up at night? I mean, seriously, let's just... Let's just have a moment between you and God. Does it ever keep you up at night wondering how God feels about you? Maybe in a worship service where we're singing like we're saying, maybe you feel very good. Maybe you feel like you're in a good place with God. But when you wake up at 2.30 in the morning and something comes back to you from your past that you hadn't thought about in a long time and it haunts you, does it ever keep you awake for a little while and you wonder how... God feels about you? Well, that's where this woman is. I mean, no longer does she have to worry about the ultra-religious people who don't care anything about her or who are guilty of their own sins. She has to worry about the fact that she is left alone with God. And how does God feel about her? And that's when Jesus asked the strangest question. And it's the question that we're dealing with. Our, our series is Red Letters, The Questions, and here's our question. Jesus asked, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And then Jesus said, neither do I. Go and don't do this anymore. How do we understand this? You know, if you have particular translations of the Bible, you'll probably read something at the beginning of John that says certain manuscripts do not include this story. And that's true. In fact, it's most interesting that certain manuscripts don't include this story, but there's an empty place where clearly something else was. And what we believe, because we weren't around in the first, second, and third centuries, what we believe is that there were those who said this story doesn't need to be in the Bible because it might encourage people to be sinful. And there were those who said, we will just set this aside. Or there were others that like stuck it as an addendum to the end of the book of John. But of course we have it today because there are manuscripts that were faithful and they left the story in. So how do you and I interpret this? I mean, exactly what happened here. Here's a woman. She's caught 
in the very act of committing adultery and picked up, jerked up, seized eagerly, thrown at the feet of Jesus, condemned and accused by the crowd, and then left because Jesus called their own sins far. But then when Jesus could have condemned her, he said, I don't condemn you. Go and don't do this anymore. What happened here? Well, I think the first thing that happened here is something happened inside of this woman that you and I wouldn't have known, but Jesus knew. Look at her language. What did she say? When Jesus said, has anyone condemned you? She said, nobody, Lord. Nobody, Lord. How does the Holy Spirit work in any of our lives? I mean, she had to face her guilt, but then she also faced Jesus. Isn't that how God worked in your life? That's how he worked in mine. I had to face my guilt, but then I looked at Jesus. And that is how sinners, whom we all are one, that's how sinners come to Jesus. I really don't think Jesus will make any sense to you until you face your sins. But if you face your sins without Jesus, it will not be a good thing. The Holy Spirit works when we face what we do wrong and we face Jesus. And that happened in this woman's life. I mean, she faced what she did wrong. There was no avoiding it anymore. However long this had been part of her lifestyle, she had reached a place where she was coming face to face with what she did and what she deserved. But thankfully at that moment was when she looked at Jesus and she said, nobody, Lord, nobody, Lord. The second thing that I draw from this story is adultery is a horrible sin and it's worthy of eternal judgment. In the book of Galatians chapter 5, there's a list of 14 sins that people who make a lifestyle of this stuff will not go to heaven and hers is on the list. Adultery is on the list, but then probably yours and mine are too. I just want you to know that Jesus didn't say it was okay to sleep around because the same Lord, who said, I don't condemn you, said, go and don't do this anymore. So lest anyone hear this and think, well, sex doesn't matter if it's forbidden by God. It's a very serious sin, and it does matter. And, but you hear the balance. I mean, we have, we, in our culture today, we have, uh, a, we have an attitude of, of easy come, easy go in this area. And there's the idea that God doesn't care what we do sexually. Well, to that person, God says, don't do this anymore. But to that person who is dealing with the guilt and the shame, who is willing to turn from that way of life, Jesus will say, neither do I condemn you. The third thing I draw from this story is, in a way, she's a picture of Jesus. Why? The very reason why Jesus came into our world. Here's some words. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, which is arguably perhaps the greatest chapter in the Bible, Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Now, one more time, listen to that. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Well, a few minutes ago, I challenged you to go into the courtroom. I challenged you to look at that person who is indicted. And let's just say at this time, it's not a jury. Let's just say it's a judge trial because it happens a lot. The lawyers agree that this is not going to be a jury trial. It's going to be in the hands of the judge. So here is an indicted person like you and me, guilty, 
caught dead to rights, who is standing before the judge, and we're, we're waiting for the sentence. And because we are guilty, we expect the judge to say guilty and go straight to punishment because there we are caught dead to rights and there's no getting around it, no hiding it. We face the judge and we're ready to hear guilty. But the judge is Jesus. Can you imagine standing there in God's courtroom getting ready to hear guilty and all of a sudden look up and you see Jesus smile? Smile at you. That's not something that judges usually do at defendants, guilty ones. But there you are, standing in God's courtroom, guilty of so many things, worthy of judgment. But when you look up at the face of Jesus, he smiles at you. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 1, there are some of my favorite words in the Bible. The Bible says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means anyone who puts faith in Jesus Christ can be forgiven of anything. Now here's the question, this is so important, and we dare not miss this because if we miss this part, we're either gonna think God is easy on sin and sin doesn't matter, or we'll walk away from this and say it's too good to be true. How can a righteous judge turn us loose? And not only turn us loose, but adopt us into his family and give us eternity with him. How can a righteous judge do that? Well, there's a reason why Jesus can set you free. I wonder when Jesus stooped down to write that day, when the crowd was screaming for this woman's death. As Jesus stooped down to write, I wonder if he looked at the blood vessels in the back of his hand. <laughs> Mine have always stood out. When he turned his hand over, did he, did he look at the blood vessels in his wrist? I don't know. But if he did, and he saw the blood vessels in the back of his hand when he wrote, He would know why he could turn her loose. Because his blood is what paid for our crime. The blood that was coursing through his veins allowed him to say to the woman, I don't condemn you. Go and don't do this anymore. I am talking tonight about God's grace. There's a human thing when we try to explain something that's a challenging concept. We, we use comparisons. If, if you meet somebody new and you're trying to explain him to a friend, you might say, well, well he's sort of like so-and-so. Or you, you might even pick out two or three people. Well, he's kind of like a cross between this guy and this guy and this guy. Or if you're, you're, dating, you're dating someone new and you're trying to explain to your friends, what she's like is like, well, she, she's like, and you might name somebody on television or just name someone that you both know. It's just human for us to do that. You go to a restaurant. Well, what's it like? Well, it's kind of like this restaurant. And we do that with God. And there are, there are traits of God that we can kind of do this with. For instance, if you're trying to explain to someone 
what God's answered prayer is like, especially if you're a parent. It's like, well, you know, if you're a mom or your dad and your kid asks for something and they can't get it for themselves and they ask you for it and you provide it for them and you give them what they ask for, then that's sort of like God answering prayer because we're like his children and we're asking for something and he gives it to us. If you want to explain God's compassion, well, you can maybe do that some with a comparison. It's like when a friend is going through a hard time and, and they don't have what they need and, and you're a friend and you care about how they feel and you go and you help them. That, that's kind of like God's compassion in our lives. If you, you want to explain the friendship of God, uh, well, you can kind of do that by saying, well, you know, it's like, it's like, this. I'm, it's like a friend loving a friend. But you can't do that with grace. Because grace is like nothing else. God's grace is like nothing you can compare it to. It's like the Trinity. For years, people have tried to say, well, you know, Father God, Son, who's God, the Holy Spirit, who's God, three in one. Is, well, I've had people tell me it was like the egg. You have the shell and the white and the yolk. No, an egg is not like the Trinity. Or people say, oh, the Trinity is like water. It's, it can take the form of gas. It, it can be steam. It can take the form of liquid or it can take the form of solid and ice. No, God's not like water. The Trinity is like nothing. There, there's only one way to grasp the Trinity, and that's by revelation. It is God telling us that, and we just believe what God tells us. And that's how it is with grace. Stop trying to compare God's grace to anything you know because God's grace is like nothing you know. There's only one way to receive God's grace and that is for God to tell us about it and we believe it because for God to take people who are as guilty as you and I are and claim that we are innocent and never did anything wrong and not only that not even not, not only not hold it against us but to forget what we have done God's grace is like nothing you know about and that is the reason why so many of us who have accepted Jesus still vacillate and go back and forth because we're trying to wonder if God's grace is like human grace and it isn't. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, someday you will stand before the judge. You will stand before God. Not in a group. Not as a family. One-on-one. -on -one. You will stand before God. And although you've been guilty of many sins... God will say, are there any accusers? Is there anyone here who will accuse Mark? Well, there are so many who could. But really, when it gets right down to it, no human can accuse me. We've already seen why not, because we're all guilty. So who could accuse us? Well, when we stand before God, God could, or Jesus could. But there's a little section of verses at the end of Romans chapter 8 that says this. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Well, God? No. 
He's the one who has forgiven us and given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? Well, Jesus? No. He's the one who died for us and came back to life again for us and is sitting at the right place in highest honor next to God, pleading for us there in heaven. And on that day when you stand before God, even though down here on this earth you've been guilty of many sins, God will say, is there anyone who will accuse her? Is there anyone who will accuse him? And the only person who could is God or Jesus, and God won't because he's the one who made up the plan, and Jesus won't because he died for you. And God will say, come on into my heaven. See why I say there's nothing like grace? <laughs> you can't compare God's grace to anything. It's just too awesome. Well, there's only one question left, and that question is, have you ever received God's grace? Because you know, God can offer it and someone could say no. Especially if we identify with that crowd of accusers, we may feel like we're doing pretty well and might not need God's grace. And so God has made it a choice. He's made an offer, and his offer is forgiveness and freedom and adoption, heaven for eternity. And anyone who will believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave can have forgiveness and can know God's grace and can stand before God with no jeopardy. Scripture says this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It just means anyone who asks for this, who believes in Jesus, who believes that he died for us and rose from the grave can have this relationship. You just need to be willing to turn from the old way of life and to invite Jesus Christ in. I'm going to close this service by asking, I'm going to pray a prayer that asks for this grace. And wherever you are, whether you're in your home or if you're here in the United States or watching around the world or wherever this service happens to catch you, you can invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior and be settled forever on this issue. I'm going to pray with you. If you want to pray, you just... Join this prayer. The important thing is not so much the words, it's what you mean in your heart. You ready? Dear God, I am a sinner. I am guilty. I identify with that woman. I may or may not have committed the same sin, but I've committed many sins. And I stand guilty before you. But I see Jesus smile. By faith, I believe he died for me. I believe he arose from the grave. I accept your offer of forgiveness and innocence. Thank you for forgiving my sin. Thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm so glad you joined us tonight in New Spring, wherever you are. And ordinarily in our live services, I make an offer. I say, if you just pray with me, 
to accept Jesus Christ, I have a gift that I'd like to give you. And this gift box has a Bible just like I preach from and a book I wrote and some other things that'll just be great helps for you in your walk. If you're watching in the United States, uh, anywhere, you can just text uh, PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97,000, and we'll do our best to get this to you. It's been a little different service tonight, and yet it's been a wonderful service. We thank you for joining us. If you'd like to, you can join us again. Well, at 5.30, we'll be having another service, and then tomorrow morning at 9.30, and then 11.15. And uh, until we can get together (laughs) face-to-face, our hearts are together as we love the Lord and love each other. God bless you, and good night. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.